Once my soul was astray from the heavenly way. I was wretched and vile as could be, but my Savior in love gave me peace from above when he reached down his hand for me. I was nearing despair when he came to That's a good song. That's got a great message, doesn't it? Aren't you glad he reached way down? Yeah, it goes along with what we talked about even this morning. 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Let me get this kicked off tonight. Again, we're glad you're here. Uh, the stage looks a little different with those houses up there, and uh, again, we're trying to fill up the house, and um, we've got our averages up there, and as you show up probably Wednesday, you'll see uh, the progress that's being made. And on next Sunday, you'll see what took place this week and uh, every week. So next week, uh, of course, is Neighbor Sunday for the Sunday schools. And so that's, the, well, that's what we're emphasizing. That doesn't mean that's the only people you can bring, of course. Uh, but uh, first-time visitors, not just in Sunday school, but at Community Baptist Temple. First-time visitors at Community Baptist Temple. And get them in Sunday school. It's a Sunday school campaign. So we're working at that and uh, uh, looking forward to that. All right, 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass 
when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. He said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. They too stood by Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. It came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. It came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd bless us tonight. May you just speak to us and encourage us from your word, and may your Holy Spirit work and move in our midst, confirming the truth of the word of God in our lives and enabling us, Lord, to stand and live it before a world, Father, that is often in opposition to you. We need you, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be committed to thee and, Lord, to consistently yield our life to you. Now, thank you again for this time together, and may your Holy Spirit fill me and fill this crowd, and may we hear with spiritual ears and allow you to do your work in our lives. We'll thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm always moved when I get to that passage in verse 9, and he says to him, basically, ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elijah said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And that always move you when you read that? Let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. That's an awesome passage. And again, it points to the wonderful desire that Elisha had 
to work the work of God, to, to be used, of the, uh, used by the God of heaven. And again, some may say, well, he was just an ambitious young man. Well, that's all right. That's a pretty good ambition to want to have double the power that Elijah had. I don't think that it was necessarily arrogance or pride that motivated him or moved him. I think it was just that he genuinely, sincerely wanted God to use him in a mighty way. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to go out and you're going to do something for God, I would hope that you'd want to do the best you can do, not just what, you know, is the standard. Man, I'll tell you what, if one of you young men or somebody says, man, I'm going to go out and start a church one day, I hope you say, man, I want a double portion. I don't want to end up just like Pastor O'Donnell. I want a double portion. You know what I mean? I mean that. I, I, I pray, you know, hey, we don't want to settle for, you know, four or five hundred. We want to settle for a thousand. I want a double portion. I want God to use me to build a church twice the size of the one that I attended. I would hope you'd have that kind of ambition. I'd hope you'd have that kind of desire, not so that you could be glorified, because honestly, I haven't been glorified in this job. I mean, all you have to do is look around you, and, and a lot of times preachers, you know, they, they preach around the country. I don't preach anywhere. I preach here. This is my church. And you know what? The Lord, if he wants to do something like that, that's his business. But I can tell you this, that's not the ambition. It's not the desire. And you know, God doesn't have to use you anywhere but where he places you. And you can be used effectively there. You don't have to preach around the country. You don't have to have a big name to be used in a big way. And I'm telling you, young men, young ladies, if you want God to do something with you in your life, you ought to say, I want a double portion. I I, I don't want to just settle for what the standard is. I want to go beyond that. And I think that's okay. I think that's good. You know, we, we encourage a young man or a young lady that says, man, I, I, especially a young man that wants to have a, uh, maybe a great career, wants to make a good living, wants to have a good job. And we say, good for you, man. I don't want to just be a, uh, this or that. I want to do this with my life. And we go, man, that's great. Look at that ambition. That's wonderful. He's really on fire. He wants to accomplish something great. When it comes to spiritual things, we go, he's just prideful. He's arrogant. Well, why is that the case? I don't think Elisha is arrogant. I think Elisha wants to really do something for God. I think he wants God to use him in a mighty way. And by the way, he did. Matter of fact, it's said that if you read through the scriptures and you look at it, I mean, uh, it appears from what I can read and what I can tell that he did double the miracle, so to speak. That God enabled him to do twice as many things, supernatural things, than what even Elijah did. A double portion. I thought that was pretty good. I'm glad for Elisha. Now listen, I think in heaven one day, I don't know if the Lord's going to go, you know what, Elisha? You did 18 wonderful things. He only did nine. So you get to sit a little closer to me. I'm not sure that's how he's going to figure it out. I don't think that's how the Lord's going to decide who is the greatest in the kingdom. You know what I mean? I don't think that's how it works. But by the same token, I don't think that that is a wrong thing to have spiritual ambition. Someone says, well, you know, I think I'm just going to read a chapter a day. Good. Someone else says, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Well, that's 1,189 chapters. So I'm not, I'm not, listen, I, I, you know what? I don't know. All I'm saying is, is that a bad ambition or is that somebody saying, oh, trying to rub my face into my reading? I only read a chapter a day and you're trying to make me feel little. Uh, you're arrogant. You're prideful. Why in the world do you have to do that? No, maybe they're just ambitious. They want to do something like that for God. Maybe one day you will. I hope you've read through the whole Bible, by the way. That's a good thing to do. You know, I bet you there's a lot of Christians that have never read through the whole Bible from start to finish. I'm not joking. I'm not even being from start to finish. I'm talking about Genesis through Revelation all the way through. 
I'm not talking about in your lifetime. I'm talking about in a period of time where you said, I'm going to read it all the way through. Start it here at Genesis and read through to Revelation and, and actually read through it. You ought to do that. You ought to do that. Please do that at least one time in your life. Uh, it's, it'll be helpful to you. And you say, well, you're crazy. I'm sure everybody in the room's done that. Okay. I'm just throwing it out there in case you haven't. I think you'd find it to be a blessing and a help to you. It kind of brings things together a little bit as you read it. And the quicker you read it, the more it has a tendency. Now, listen, I, I get it. I know someone's going to say, well, you just don't understand what you're reading when you're reading that fast. I know. That's not the point of reading through the Bible like that. Reading through the Bible like that is try to connect some dots along the way. You'll be amazed that when you read through Genesis to Revelation in three months, you'd be amazed how it brings things together. It helps because you remember things you read just three weeks ago that were way back here, but you read so much that you remember them from back there, and it connects things. It's just helpful. It's nice. Maybe it takes you six months. Maybe it takes you nine months. Maybe it takes you a year. Who knows? Maybe it takes you two years. But get through the Bible all the way through Genesis to Revelation in an orderly fashion. That'd be helpful. So anyway, spiritual ambition. Now, that's not what the message is at all. I have nothing to do with the message. I just love that passage. That one of these days, I'm going to stop at verse 9 as I read through that, and I'm just going to go off on something in that verse. That's just so good. That's just so good there, isn't it? All right, so what I notice, though, in this passage is this. And, and it's simple. It's really simple. Listen to the Sunday night crowd. You guys are serving the Lord. A lot of you have been out door knocking. You've made visits. You've done those kind of things in your life. I'm talking to the choir, if you will. I'm speaking to the choir type thing. But I do want to mention something I think is important because even as being in that position, the temptation can be to step back, ease up, and even quit. That, that can happen, and that happens, that can be a temptation in all of our lives. It really can be. It's just a, it's a natural response to, to some things in our lives, sometimes tragedy, sometimes difficulty, battles and opposition. Everybody is aware of Elijah. He's going to be taken up. Everybody knows this. We read it in the passage. These prophets, they all know it. They keep coming to Elisha. Hey, you know your, your master's going to be gone, right? I don't know how everybody knows what's going on here, but they all know. They seem to know what's going to take place. I don't know if God told them ahead of time. I don't know if Elijah had been telling them for a while. I, I'm not sure exactly what's going on here, but I do know, based on what I'm reading, that it seems like everywhere he's going, somebody knows he's going to be leaving. So <clears throat> here he is now traveling to Bethel, and he travels to Jericho, and he travels to Jordan. And, you know, it just seems that he's somewhat busy here. Now, he knows that the Lord's coming at any moment to take him out. He knows that the chariot of fire is going to be coming out of heaven and receiving him up. And yet, he still just keeps on going. I think he's a tremendous example of a faithful Christian in service. He's waiting on the chariot of fire, but instead of taking a seat, instead of just relaxing, instead of just conceding, the, uh, just saying, it's over with, I'm done, my days are over, it's time for the new guy to step up. He says, no, you know what? I'm going to keep going till the day I go up. I kind of like that. Right to the very end, he's on the job. Right to the very end, he's mentoring a young man. Right to the very end, he's going in, in, in service for Christ to different locations and in, 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 in influencing others in the area. He's doing the work of God to the very end. 
And you may not be able to do what you used to do, but you can do something. You may not be as energetic as you used to be, but you got some energy. You may not be able to get out and even knock a door like you used to knock a door, but you can do something. You can pray or you can call or you can reach out. You can do something for Jesus till the day he calls you home. We can all do something. I like when the Lord Jesus talks about uh, that, that woman. He said, she did what she could. I like that. Get off her back. She didn't waste that ointment. She did what she could. Can I tell you, that's all God's looking for out of us is to do what we can. He understands we have limitations. He knows that we're not always up to speed. He knows that we're not always up to par, that we have our troubles and trials. He knows that our health isn't always as good as it, it we'd like it to be. And he recognizes that sometimes we grow weary, even in well-doing to some degree. And he says, don't do that. But if you do, I'm still here for you. Call upon me, lean on me, trust in me, not your own understanding, and just keep on going. We've got to obey and serve the Lord until the day he receives us up into glory. Listen, the devil may not be able to steal your soul, and he can't. But he can derail your service, and he can render you useless as a believer. And you know, he is a worthy adversary, and he wants to fight, and he is going to put forth every effort possible to cause you to quit. And I just want to encourage you to keep on going. Man, Elijah faced some obstacles that could have easily derailed his service, could have easily kept him from the work of God. There's no doubt about that in Elijah's life. No doubt at all. And you and I are going to face a number of obstacles as well. And tonight, I just want to share three obstacles from the life of Elijah that you and I cannot allow to derail us. We can't let these three obstacles derail us. Number one, we can't allow foes to keep us from standing. And I, I, I've... I, I think it's important that we just remember that Elijah had a lot of enemies, a ton of enemies. Look, if you would, in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's interesting to note how Ahab literally blamed all his problems and all his woes and all the woes of the kingdom on the man of God, Elijah. He just, I mean, he blamed him for everything. I mean, blame shifting is uh, not nothing, nothing new uh, with us in our day and age. It's always been taking place. And notice what he does here. We've seen from the very garden this takes place. But notice what Ahab does. Ahab is, one of the, is the most wicked king to ever exist. At least the Bible expresses that in the scriptures. And you know the interesting thing about Ahab? In the end, he repents. And you know what God does? God spares him the punishment in his lifetime. And he says, I'm going to give the punishment to his son's lifetime. He said, instead of rending the kingdom now, instead of doing what I'm going to do to you and I promise to do, instead of rendering you without any offspring, I'm going to wait till you're gone because you humbled yourself and repented. That's amazing to me. He was the most wicked king ever. And, and the Bible is clear about this. It's like there's no king that was so wicked in, in Israel at that point. And here he is repenting. Man, I don't know about you, but that's a, that's, that offers me a lot of hope. I don't know, that's, that's a lot of hope for me. I like that. No matter how wicked you are, no matter what you've done. I mean, this guy's causing all of Israel to, to worship idols. He's following in the footsteps of Jeroboam, his father, he says. I know it wasn't his actual father, but they often use that terminology. But he's, he's following in his footsteps. 
It means he's causing them to sin with other gods. And, and in the end, he's just a wicked king, and he humbles himself, repents, and the Lord smiles upon him. Check it out sometime. Just read it for yourself. It's, it's an amazing, amazing, we say story, but an account. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Notice here, it says, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab, uh, and Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubled Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou in thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and hast and thou hast followed Balaam. It's not me. What are you talking about, king? It's not me. I'm not the one troubling Israel. I'm not the one causing all the problems. Look in the mirror. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 17 through 40, we're going to find that there's this great challenge that Elijah puts out. He says, I'll tell you what you do. You call your 450 uh, prophets of Baal together. You call your 400 prophets of the groves together. You bring them on out, and we're going to see. We're going to have a contest to see whose God is really God. Is it Jehovah God, or is it Baal? Let's figure it out, all right, king? Let's get this thing together. What do you think? You guys ready to, to handle the challenge? Yeah, we're ready. They go out there, and the 450 uh, prophets of Baal are on one side, along with the 400 prophets of the groves, and here's Elijah standing over here. He says, oh, by the way, there's so many of you. Why don't you go ahead and build your altar first? And, and so many of you crying out, you'll obviously get the ear of your God so quick. They'll be on top of it, right? We know how it goes. Ultimately, they cry out. They cut themselves. They do all kinds of things to try to get the attention of their gods. And what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Finally, Elijah come evening says, you know what? You guys have had your chance. You've had your opportunity. Let's go ahead and build up this altar of the Lord. Let's go ahead and make it uh, sturdy and solid. And they get it all together. And he begins to pour water upon it, upon water, upon it, upon water, upon it. And then what happens? Fire comes out of heaven. The Lord shows up, does a mighty work. Man, there's no enemy stronger than the Lord. It's obvious that God is greater than all. And here's Elijah, his prophet, his man. He's representing God. And man, he sees this great victory. He lines up 450 prophets of Baal and they're gone. They're out. Lights out. They're done. They're toast. They're over with. And here he is, this great, this, this, this great amazing miracle that God did. And they hear the people, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God, the people cry. So not only does Elijah prove that Baal's not God, he proves that Jehovah is God to all of Israel. There was always opposition in his life. You and I are a guaranteed opposition as well. Elijah didn't like, uh, excuse me, I should say Ahab did not like Elijah. He wanted nothing to do with him. He'd have been much happier if Elijah was dead. And you know what? You're going to face opposition in your life too. Jesus faced it. Moses faced it. Jeremiah faced it. Ezekiel faced it. Other men and women of God have faced it throughout Scripture. In May of 2001, a fellow by the name of Eric 
uh, Weyenmeyer, he accomplished something that only 150 people a year do. I've told you about this before. I think it's important. It's such an amazing story. But he reached the top of Mount Everest. He said, that's not that amazing. 150 people a year do it. Yeah, well, the thing that made Eric's achievement unusual is that he was first, he's the first blind person to ever succeed in climbing Mount Everest. He was born with a disease that left him completely blind by the age of 13. Now, he could have allowed the enemy of blindness to cripple him. <clears throat> Without a doubt, he could have. And everybody would have said, yeah, no doubt. There's no way you're ever going to accomplish anything great like that being blind. I mean, come on, man, you're a cripple. You can't do that. What are you trying to do, you know? But he didn't do that. He wouldn't allow that enemy of blindness to do that to him. Instead, to, instead, he chose to overcome every obstacle in his life. And eventually, he stood victorious on top of that mountain. Can I tell you that every one of us are going to face challenges? Yours may be a little different than mine. Mine a little different than yours. And, and yours a little different than your neighbor's or your wife or your husband or whomever it may be. But I promise you this, you're going to have some obstacles that you have to face in your Christian life and in your life in general. And can I tell you today that God is bigger than all the obstacles. We cannot allow the foes to keep us from standing for God. They'll try to shout you down. They'll try to keep you down. We can't allow the enemies to table any attempt at victory or to, or to cause us to, 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 to run, or put, you know, turn tail and run. We've got to stand for Jesus Christ. We've got to rise above our foes. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yea, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangled himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. God didn't choose us to sit on the sideline or to just simply keep the door at the house of God, although that'll be great in heaven one day. Remember that big old song about that? You can go ahead and keep the door for my mansion, but I'm going to be living in mine. I'm not holding the door for your mansion. I'm going to live in mine. Okay, and somebody says, I'll hold the door of heaven. Well, first of all, the gates will, gates will be open forever, so you'll be standing there. You'll never get a chance to do anything. Okay, so anyway, moving on. Uh, so nonetheless, this is really like flying over everybody's head, and uh, I have no idea where I'm at right now. So uh, endure hardness as a good soldier. You know a soldier that's ever been in battle that didn't endure hardness? Difficulty, struggle. Hey, he's just painting a nice picture for us. Isn't it amazing how often we expect life to be smooth? You know, especially early on as believers, if we're not careful, we think, man, my problems are pretty big. I'm so grateful I came to Jesus Christ, and we expect God to fix every problem. You know, we, you've ever, maybe you were like that at one point early on in your Christianity. Your marriage is falling apart, so you get saved, and you think, well, then therefore my marriage should be better. But it didn't get better. It does take two to tango, by the way. And the fact is, is that sometimes you don't get saved to be saved from your problems. You get saved to be saved from your sin. And a lot of times, if we're not careful, we have these expectations that are unscriptural. Not that God can't spare us, not that God can't overcome, not that he won't necessarily take away all of those things in our life and to put us in a place where we can see the victories over and over again early on. But sometimes it takes a lifetime of service and faithfulness to overcome the sin and the consequences that we caused early on in our lives. We've got to be willing just to stay the course and stay faithful, just like Elijah did, because there's going to be foes, there's going to be enemies to keep us from standing. 
Number two, we can't allow fear to keep us from striving. We're going to have foes that try to keep us from standing. We're going to have fear to keep us from striving. We can't allow that fear to do that. The idea that none of us are afraid, we never get scared, that's wrong. That's not true at all, is it? I don't know about you, but I hear a sound at night and I get scared. I send the wife out to check it out. I mean, I'm the preacher, right? I mean, I got to preach Sunday. She's missing whatever. No, that's not how it goes. That's not, that's not how it goes. I'm going to tell you something, though. I, I'm one of those guys, I'm a little bit, I'm not as paranoid as I used to be, I don't think. And my son knows how paranoid I was. He's looking at me like, uh-huh. He's probably telling the truth. It's like, go ahead, honey, I'm right behind you. <laughs> I'm right behind you. But I hear those noises in the house. I'm like, whoa, man, what's that? And I, you know, because we, we got this refrigerator now, and this refrigerator, it makes this big knock. It's like, bam! And I'm like, what was that, you know? I mean, it's really loud. It used to be really light, and it's getting louder and louder and louder. And somebody's going, that's not a good sign, preacher. But anyway, it's getting louder. And I'll hear that thing in the middle of the night. Like last night, I was laying there. I was just about ready to doze off. I was like. And I'm thinking, man, I sure wish my gun was closer. I'd kill myself trying to get to it. And I'd step all over Sherry probably in the process. So don't break into my house, but if you do, you probably won't get shot. But nonetheless, the fact is, is that I get scared. And you know what? So do you at times. You know, fear is just, it's, you know, there is a a natural fear. There's a, a, a good fear in one sense. I mean, it's like, you know, you don't want to touch something hot. That's a good fear to have, right? Now, you shouldn't have to fear touching hot things if you know what's hot and you know what not to touch. But boy, I'll tell you what, if you don't know, it's like electricity. Again, that's one of my big fears. I don't like electricity. I don't even like getting shocked. And so if I know something's a little hotter, if there's a wire, and you know, doing renovation projects and stuff, there's always wires hanging everywhere. You're walking by, you touch it with your head, and you're just like, you know, did that just get me or not? And you're like, you'd know if you got stuck. I, I'm a little bit weird. I don't know. You know, I have to worry about that. So I walk by and I'm like, you know, do I, you know touch that, see if it's hot or, or, or use this and touch it and see if that sparks. I'm like, I don't want to touch that. What are you talking about? What if, that's, what if it lights me up? I don't like nothing to do with that stuff. I, I'm afraid of that electricity. I don't like it that much. So nonetheless, we got fears. And you know what? In the Christian life, there's going to be times you get afraid. It's just reality. It's life. We get around talking and we talk about the boldness of Jesus. We talk about how we can't be afraid and how God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but a love and a power and a sound mind. And that's great talk and that's good preaching. But in our lives, we face it, don't we? And we have to overcome it. We got to realize and recognize that, you know what? There's going to be certain people or things or circumstances in life that breed fear in our lives that are going to try to hamper us and hinder us from the work of God. We got to just say, you know what? I'm not going to let that happen. With your help, God, I won't let that happen. It's going to come in my life, but I won't let it control me because it'll come. But you can't let it control you. We can't allow fear to keep us from striving. We'll be tempted maybe to quit. We'll be tempted to back up. We'll be tempted to rest and relax. We'll be tempted to say, I don't want to go forward. It's too dangerous. We just can't let the fear rule us. We have to let God rule us. Let his spirit rule us. Elijah, he has just enjoyed one of the greatest victories in his life and in history. 
<laughs> but not long after, we find him running from the enemy, don't we? Turn, you're in 1 Kings, look at verse, chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. We have the infamous queen now, Jezebel. Look at what she does and what she says. Man, she gets news and gets wind of this, and you know Ahab's like, honey, you should have seen it. It was a mess, man. I mean, he took out 450 of your prophets. She's like, what are you talking about, mine? Aren't they yours too? Well, yeah. She's like, oh, I'm going to get him for that. Every great victory that a Christian has, probably there's somebody that wishes they didn't have it. <laughs> and there's somebody probably that wants to return the favor. And in this case, we have Jezebel who's saying, you know what, enough's enough. I heard what you did, Elijah. Watch what she says. Then Jezebel, chapter 19, verse 2, sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods, notice little g gods, do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. I heard what you did to the prophets of Baal. You, I'm telling you, let the gods do the same thing to me. And even more, if you aren't dead about this time tomorrow. That's what she basically said. That's what she's saying. And of course, Elijah, being the man of God who stood there against 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the groves against King Ahab and the wicked, sinful nation of Israel, stood there and said, listen, God, he is the Lord, and you will learn that lesson. And God sent fire out of heaven. He witnessed it firsthand. Ran the sword through all 450 of those prophets of Baal. Had this great victory. And one woman, one woman says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow at this time. You'll be dead. And Elijah says, yeah, right. Who are you? No, instead he takes off for the hills. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's amazing to me. You tell, tell, tell me that women don't have power. That woman had some power. And you know what? He believed her when she, she said it. A gifted speaker by the name of John Christenstam, he was sent from Antioch to what was then Constantinople. Constantinople, excuse me, where he preached, I mean, fearlessly in the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. His uh, denunciation of the extravagant lifestyle of the rich and the ruling class, his condemnation of just uh, their excess, it infuriated them. They were so angry at him. Even the empress, Eudoxia, she arranged for him to be exiled. When he was told of his fate, that he would be exiled, Christenstam, he responded by saying, what can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life, that I shall gain, and, and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth in all its fullness is the Lord's. Will it be the loss of wealth? But we brought nothing into the, the world, 
and can carry nothing out. Thus all the terrors of the world are contemptible in my eyes, and I smile at all its good things. Poverty I do not fear, riches I do not sigh for, death I do not shrink from. Yeah. That wasn't Elijah that day, though, was it? I think the truth is, is that there are some days where you and I feel a lot like Chrysostom. But we say, listen, I don't care. Bring all the foes of hell. I'm standing for Jesus Christ. I'll not allow fear to keep me from striving. And then there are other times, like Elijah, we go, man, I've seen what God's done, but boy, I'm scared to death right now. Somebody says something awkward at a door. Somebody uh, gets a little upset in our family toward us. And, or maybe we find ourselves standing on a position or a certain place in the Scriptures and others around us don't agree. And we find ourselves shrinking. Elijah was on the run after a tremendous victory. Fear was controlling him now. It wasn't his faith, it was fear. And in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 10, the Bible says, And he came thither into a cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. We remember David. David would go to a cave as well. He was on the run from Saul the king. And now we see Elijah here. He's on the run from this queen, and he finds himself holding up in a cave. But I'm glad that in the midst of that dark cave, he wasn't alone. And can I tell you as a believer, you'll never be alone either. It doesn't matter how far you run or how hard you try to hide, you can never get away from God because he lives in you. And he came thither unto a cave, verse 9, and he lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? Let me, let me, I know the King James is very difficult to understand. What are you doing here, Elijah? Is that easier? <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Because <laughs> I actually know what that means. But anyway, <clears throat> and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. Look at the response, verse 14. Again, he says, And I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Every time the Lord addresses him, he keeps letting him know, I'm standing for you. I'm the only one that's got a backbone. Keep asking, Lord, and I'll keep telling you I love you and I'm there. I'm the only one, though. You ever feel like a martyr? You ever feel like you're the only one that really cares about the Sunday school? The only one that cares about the church soul-winning program? The only one that cares about the bus ministry? The only one that cares about the choir. The only one that cares about doing things right. The only one that cares about, about uh, the altar worker. The only one that cares about the parking lot. The only one that cares about... You ever feel like sometimes you think, I wish I'm the only one that really thinks about this, that cares about this. 
You ever feel like that? I'm the only one. Hey, listen, it happens sometimes. We think to ourselves, if only... Uh Uh-huh. Elijah felt that he was the only one that was standing for God, the only one that really cared about the reputation of God. But it's interesting because finally the Lord has enough of hearing from Elijah. And he finally says to him in verse 18, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. I think it's interesting, too, that when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed with a kiss. Isn't that interesting, too? But anyway, moving on. So here's Elijah. He's not the only one, obviously. He feels like he's the only one that cares. He feels like he's the only one that's standing. He believes somehow that no one is in my place doing what I do and has the heart for God like I have a heart for God. And the Lord has to remind him, you're not alone. There's 7,000 others. And I think it's interesting, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. It's almost like the Lord orchestrates all of this. It isn't by chance there are 7,000. He makes sure there are 7,000. That's kind of interesting to me. And And that's not Calvinism at work here either. But I'm just saying it's kind of interesting to me. See, every time we start feeling sorry for ourselves like Elijah did, every time we allow uh, our, our fears to control us, God wants to remind us that he's in control. Hey, you're not alone. And you're not just alone in the sense that you... Listen, that's why you need the local church. That's why I need it too, because sometimes we can get like Elijah feeling all alone, and he says, no, there's plenty of others that are also plugged into my work that care about me. And then we just need to know and always remember that he's there for us always. Fear has often derailed God's people. It's kept us from giving, from going. It's kept us from growing in the Christian life like we should. Fear, fear does that. The Lord instructs Jeremiah, he says, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord, Jeremiah 1.8. Be not afraid of their faces. How often have we been afraid of their faces when it comes to witnessing or sharing or passing out a track or just being a witness for Jesus Christ? It happens more than we'd like to admit. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's not a real popular verse, but let me tell you, it's saying basically, why in the world do we fear humanity when we have God who we should be fearing more than anyone? Man, if anyone can control our destination and destiny, it's God, it's not man. We're to fear no one or nothing but God. That's what the Bible implies. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. When it's all said and done, give it to me straight, he says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every great, uh, secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Well, we've got to fear God. Elijah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt you have plenty of enemies 
But God gave you the ability and the grace to overcome those enemies, to be victorious. But also, Elijah, it's that fear of yours. It's getting the best of you now. You were bold as a lion, and now you are like running for the hills. You can't let your fear rule you, Elijah. And can I say, we can't let it keep us from striving in the Christian life either. Finally, we cannot allow failure to keep us from succeeding. Every one of us in this life are going to fail at something. We're going to fail probably more than we'd like to admit it. Failure keeps people from moving forward. It paralyzes us. It kind of goes back to number two. It causes us to fear things. We make a mistake. We mess up. We do something wrong. We somehow label ourselves a failure instead of just simply failing. And it's so important that we understand that failure cannot keep us from succeeding. The only one ultimately that can keep you from succeeding is you. Because God has given us every opportunity and he's provided us with every tool necessary to succeed in the Christian life. The only way that we don't succeed in the Christian life is if we derail ourselves, really. You say, but it's really that person's fault. If they wouldn't have said that or did that, or if this situation wouldn't have happened, if my health would have held up, then I would have succeeded. Uh, Well, let's talk to a young man who at the age of 13 was blind, and yet he conquered a mountain. He could have easily stayed home and sat in his easy chair, learned Braille and read a few books, listened to them on audio, heard about how beautiful it was out there in the world and how interesting it was to accomplish things in life, but sit and say, woe is me, I can do nothing. But he didn't. He said, I'm going to overcome. I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to succeed in life in spite of it all. I will not let the cards I've been dealt keep me from succeeding. Can I tell you in the Christian life, Not only sometimes do we not get dealt the cards we'd like. I'm not six foot, six one like I'd like to be. But I can't let that keep me from succeeding. I am extremely muscular. So I've made up for it in other areas. But the truth is, is that every one of us, Carly could say there's some things that I wish some certain cards would have been dealt differently to me. Right? I mean, we, maybe the, the home we grew up in, maybe the circumstances that we grew up in. Maybe, I wish the cards would have been different. They, you can't go back and change them. So you can't let them cause you to fail. You can't allow that to keep you from succeeding. Maybe God's allowed things in your life that has disrupted your plans. Like I said, you just found yourself in a place where you feel like, I just cannot accomplish what I should. There's no way I can succeed. I'm a failure. I have failed, and I'm a failure. That is something we can't let happen. In Philippians chapter 3, we've read it often, but in verse 13 and 14, the Bible says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Boy, I tell you, the past can really hold us down, can it? In this case, even the Apostle Paul, even the good things that he had, those things in the flesh that he had. You know, he was an ardent Jewish uh, soldier, 
I mean, in a sense. Now, I'm not saying a literal soldier, but, man, he carried the banner for Judaism. Man, he could look at his works and he could say, man, I was full of good works when I was in Judaism. I, I tell you, when I was back here, I, I, I was a, a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, man. I mean to tell you, he went, goes through a list of credentials even and says, this is what I was and this is who I was, but I can't look at my past anymore and lean on that anymore. And sometimes it may, may not be just your righteousness or your good works or your deeds or those kind of things that you're looking back to, maybe it is something that happened in your life. Maybe something horrible. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were taken advantage of. Maybe you were cheated. Maybe you were hurt or harmed in some way. Whatever it might be, we cannot allow the past to control our present and our future. We can't let that happen. We're new creatures in Christ, and we have to understand that God gives us the ability to overcome. And it isn't. I, I've not experienced a lot of things that so many, maybe even in this room, have experienced. God spared me so many things. But I know that the Word of God is true. And I know that He's bigger than our problems. Theodore Roosevelt made the statement, he said, the only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. He said, I'm just afraid of failing. <laughs> you can't be afraid of failing. It'll if you, if you don't attempt things, you'll never accomplish anything. And the only way you keep from failing is to do nothing. That's not any way to live. Edison spent more than $100,000 to, and, and you got to understand, he lived a long time ago. $100,000 in his day was a lot more than it is today. He spent more than $100,000 to obtain 6,000 different fiber specimens, and only three of those 6,000 proved satisfactory. Three. He claimed that each failure brought him that much closer to the solution to his problem. Thomas Edison's manufacturing facility in West Orange, New Jersey, was damaged by fire one night on December the, December, in, in December of 1914. He lost almost $1 million worth of equipment. Again, we're talking about 1914. $1 million in that day worth of equipment and the record of much of his work. The next morning, walking about the charred embers of his hopes and dreams, the 67-year-old inventor said this, there's value in dis disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Now we can start anew. Isn't that something? There's value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Now we can start anew. Boy, we can't allow failure to keep us from succeeding in the Christian life. You knocked on that door once. You got discouraged and you quit. You used to do that. You tried that teaching thing, but it didn't work. You even tried the choir and you sang for a while, but, well, it wasn't working for you. Not because you can't sing, but... Well, you felt like you just weren't maybe as good as someone else. I'll guarantee you, you weren't as bad as someone else either. You say, well, who's that? Mum's the word, baby. I don't listen that close. I don't even listen that close. But I can guarantee you this. When you allow anybody in a church in your choir, there's always somebody probably that sings worse than you. And you know what? They're singing for Jesus just like you ought to be. 
But again, failure sometimes, the, the concept of failure, we think somehow we have failed at what we attempted and it discourages us and we will not go forward and it'll keep us from succeeding. We can't let that happen. Elijah had a number of victories and yet he experienced some failures as well. But he found great delight in serving the Lord. And even though he experienced those disappointments, he continued to rebound. His faith was undaunted at times. And yet at other times, the doubts flooded his soul. He stood ferociously on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he could be found wilting with fear at another. And I don't know about you, I don't like to live like that. But you know what? No matter what you may think about Elijah... No matter what you think about the man or the ministry, the fact is, to the very moment that he was taken up, he was still serving. Oh, I know he came close to quitting. I know he wanted to die. I get all that. But in the end, he was still serving. In the end, he was still bringing along the young man and saying, come on, follow me. Come on. You really want a double portion? You're going to have to be there when I leave. But right now, we got work to do. And without any real knowledge of the exact moment, the chariot came, picked him up, and off he went. I hope that one day, when I close my eyes in death, or I'm taken out by the rapture, that I'm busy about the master's work. I'm not saying that I won't necessarily be sitting in an easy chair after a long day of witnessing or sharing the gospel or, or praying for my family and friends and loved ones and the world that's lost in sin. Oh, I may be actually sitting down. That's fine. But I don't want to not be actively serving the Lord. I want to consciously be saying, I'm still in the battle. I'm still working for Jesus. I may not be able to do what I used to do, but I can do what I can do. And that's what Elijah was doing. God help us to face our foes and stand. God, help us to face our fears and strive. God, help us to face our failures and succeed. And that's only possible with Christ's help. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Let's not do this in our own strength. And if we'll truly trust the Lord and we'll allow him to empower us, to fill us with his spirit, no matter how many ups and downs we have, in the end, <clears throat> We'll still be serving when he comes. Let's stay busy in the master's work. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you do for us. Father, we thank you for the testimony of Elijah. Lord, he wasn't perfect. But Lord, boy, he, he was faithful to the end. He at least stuck with it. Oh, I know he wanted to quit.